yesterday, of course, was the 9-1-1 celebration, so I had someone, I guess, was up early in the morning. They hit me with a text that said something to the effect, uh, Pastor, those people that were on those towers and those buildings during 9-1-1, when they jumped to their death, what, what happened to them? Because suicide is a sin and what all does that does that mean and so I guess on their job they were kind of going back and forth several of the ladies and so I sent her a nice little text just kind of explain some of this stuff from a biblical perspective so I want to want to begin in, in talking a little bit about this and just kind of work on the question regarding when people attempt to take their life, when some people achieve the taking of their own life, what's a biblical approach to dealing with suicide? I don't doubt that all of us in here have probably known someone or known families that have been touched by it. I know I've been in the middle of circumstances like this I don't know how many times, just, just as a pastor, and trying to find comfort for people. Now, particularly, I'm only going to deal with it from the side of a Christian that's approaching suicide. Because if, if we're dealing with an unbeliever, and an unbeliever takes his life or her life, then we understand if, if we don't know Jesus, then we're already in trouble. But, but what... What does the scripture share with us and what should be our understanding of this from the word of God? So let's go to Judges chapter 9 and let's look at some occasions here where people attempted to take their life. Then some where they did. You'd probably be surprised to know there are at least five occasions in here where people took their life. Several occasions where people made the attempt. We'll look at the context that leads some people to want to do this. I'm going to tell you this from the beginning. It's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Satan will do whatever he can to destroy life, and there's nothing he enjoys more than seeing people tormented in their mind, in their body, in their emotions. But in Judges chapter 9, Let's look at a gentleman by the name of Abimelech. Let's come to verse 50. Then went Abimelech to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and took it. Now we're talking about warfare. But there was a strong tower within the city, and there fled all the men and the women. And it says they all... They of the city closed up and they got to the top of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower, fought against it. He went close to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. When he got really close to the door, verse 53, a certain woman cast a piece of millstone upon Abimelech's head and all to, to break his skull, to crush it. She dropped a large rock or something on her head. And that leveled him. So he knew he was in trouble. So in verse 54, he quickly called for a young man, his armor bearer, and said, Draw your sword and slay me, that men say not of me, 
a woman slew him, and his young man brushed him through and he died. So the first thing I want you to understand is the context in, in which this man wanted to lose his life. He didn't want it to be said that a lady killed him. But the problem was the injuries he had sustained were so great. And in that mental condition, in that situation, that's when he started thinking about death. He wasn't thinking about death before he got to the door. He wasn't thinking about death before he got hit. And when you are talking with people who are dealing with thoughts of suicide, people who all of a sudden start talking about uh, their life is meaningless or empty, there's a context in which that individual lives, and there obviously is something that's bringing that on. It wasn't too terribly long ago where a, a young man who had a child out of wedlock but had been in and out of church as a Christian, he didn't know that his ex-girlfriend had conceived. He kept it from her. Then he found out. Then after the baby was born, she said to him, I'm not going to let you see the child. And because he was so heartbroken over that, he uh, got in his truck, pulled his truck up in front of his house, wrote a letter, pulled a shotgun out, shot himself just before he killed himself. He called his sister, told her, come, and she got there found the dead brother. So again, context. If you're looking at what happened quickly, some people, they'll say, well, you can always see the signs of, of uh, a suicide attempt or when somebody's going down that direction. No, you can't. Because this individual that did that just the night before, he's playing pool with other people, laughing and joking and having a good time. This spirit of death came just like that. Quickly. So when, when people say to you that you can always see it, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can. Now you can see here, he called for someone to take his life. So essentially, here's a man who's wounded, he's hurt, he's in pain, and he wants somebody to help him die. I don't encourage you to ever get involved with anything like that. And if somebody's coming to you and then asking you to pull the plug on them, don't get involved with that. The scripture says in Psalm 31, my times are in the hands of the Lord. Job made it very plain in chapter 1, I believe verse 21. It's the king that gives, the king that takes away. He gave the breath of life to this physical body. So long as this thing is going to be here, then let this thing keep on breathing and beating. You say, well, what about people who uh, are alive because they're on a machine, you know, and the family is wanting to make a decision about that? Then my encouragement to you is don't you become part of that decision. You let them make a decision they can live with. But don't you get involved with telling them, okay, now is the time you need to pull the plug. That's not our responsibility. We don't need to get involved with that kind of a thing at all. Let's go over to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going we're gonna to slowly go through this, but I'm going to pick up the pace. There's several of these I think we need to deal with. And other questions if I can get that far. 1 Samuel 31. Saul had been in a, a battle 
and he had been chased down by some archers that had bows and arrows. So look here in verse number three. The battle went sore severely against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Now let's remember how arrows pierce the body. For this ancient time, the arrow goes into you, and it's not like a pen or just a knife, a straight blade. You just pull right out. That arrow goes in you. It's got an arrow head on it. And so when you pull something out, you're snatching out all kinds of stuff. This man's in pain. So verse 4, he calls his armor bearer. He says, draw your sword. Thrust me through there with, lest these circumcised come, these uncircumcised come and abuse me. Thrust me through. But his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. So here is a man who's wounded also, just like Abimelech. He asks his armor bearer, please take my life. And armor bearer wouldn't do it. So Saul, what does he do? Because he doesn't want to be tortured. He attempts to kill himself. Falls on his own sword. Apparently was dead. And his armor bearer, when he saw that his master was dead, he said the armor bearer took his life. Again, look at the context. You've got people in pain. You've got people wounded. You've got difficulties taking place. A day before, neither the armor bearer nor Saul were thinking about taking their life. But there are some people, as the New Testament describes them sometimes, not in an offensive manner or in an insulting way, but, but to describe a person's thinking, sometimes it uses the word feeble mind. If, 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 if you're not careful, if you can't strengthen your thoughts and bring every thought captive, as a new covenant believer. If you, if you can't do that, then I can tell you right now, you, you may have a nervous breakdown. You may end up uh, wrestling with these thoughts and succumbing to them. But, but never forget, your mind is the citadel for your body. And, and you have to govern your thinking. So no matter how bad the circumstances get, you should not be thinking about, oh my goodness, my master is dying. I can't go on living without him. I wonder how many ladies in India through the decades have taken their life because they lost their husband. How many spouses have not wanted to go on living because they lost the spouse? How many children, even adult kids, have wanted to just end their life and did end their life because they lost their mom or their dad, their biggest support? Context is everything when we look at what, what the adversary can use by way of environment to change our thinking. In this instance, the armor bearer would not thrust Saul through, but he took his own life. But Saul tried to take his own life. You can see over and over again as we look at this, suicide typically, attempts at suicide typically begin when trouble comes. But you're never going to find this as a posture that God has for his covenant-believing people. That's not God's plan for you. That's not God's plan for me. You say, why? Because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't want you to harm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, let's go into the next chapter then. Because at the end of the chapter, the Philistines did come. And the people did see Saul. And they did decapitate him. And they took his body and fastened him up on the wall and did everything to him in death that he knew they'd probably do to him in life. 
But in, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, a man out of the Amalek camp came running, and Saul apparently wasn't really dead. And when he got to where Saul was, Saul begged him, please take my life, and he did. So he comes with the crown and the bracelet uh, in uh, verse 9 and 10, and he comes and stands there and tells David how he took the life of Saul, assisted him, helped him die so that he wouldn't be hurt. Okay, now we, we hear this all the time because when people start talking about euthanasia, what they're saying is euthanasia from the Greek means a good death. And a good death is if, if you don't want to be in pain and you don't want to have to pay that extra money and you don't want to be involved with this, then grandpa just have to have a plug pulled on him and a nephew or somebody will have to do that. And then people say that's a good merciful death. Again, I want you to know that, that life and death is in the hands of God. Okay. Now, aside from Romans that talks about the government not, government not bearing the sword in vain and the whole eye for an eye kind of a thing under the law, we need to understand that it is not within our power, it certainly is not in our responsibility to be trying to take life. Okay. So when, when David heard that this young man did this in verse 13 and 14, he says, how is it that you weren't afraid to stretch forth your hand against the Lord's anointing? Now Saul had backslid, started cavorting with witches. The Bible says a, 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 the evil spirit came to him and started troubling him. The only thing that would refresh him was the anointed music that David provided for him. But, but even after he had fallen away from God, and Samuel said, you'll never see my face again. And God has taken the kingdom from you. In David's mind, even though he's lost all of that, he still was the anointed of the king because he had it on. And how is it that you weren't afraid to take a knife, punch it into that man? So we, 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 don't, we don't get into a situation where we allow people to talk us into Helping people pass away. But then David goes on to tell the young man, since you believe in helping people pass away, I'm going to help you. And David called for one of his servants, and one of his servants came and killed him out of that. Yeah. So, so, so we can see then that, that this is not something that is of a godly character. It certainly doesn't come from the king. But, but let's look at something else now. Second Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to pick up the pace now. 2 Samuel 17, and look at the counselor for the king out here. Verse 23. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, even David not going to listen to him, nobody's paying attention to him. He saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the cellar. Now, if you if you if you talk to anybody that's some kind of a secular counselor or something like that, they'll tell you that there are some people that when they think about taking their life, they start trying to put things in order. This is where it comes from. From the book. Now they won't use the Bible. And they won't teach from the scriptures to explain the context of why some people 
will try to do this. But again, notice the problem with him. He felt abandoned. He felt rejected. There are a number of reasons why people will take their life. Number one, it's not in any particular order, but number one, fear of exposure. Somebody's going to find out what I've done. I've invested a bunch of money. It's going to bring shame to my family. Uh, sometimes it can happen because of fear of, you know, just having to go to jail. Fear of punishment. The idea that I've got to spend life in prison. I may face an election or something like that. There are a lot of different reasons people will try to take their own life. Sometimes they feel neglected. Somebody's been shunned and nobody's talking. You see young people today, when uh, COVID was going on, you know, they said that the rate of people taking their life went up because people were cut off from interaction with people. And then you had folks that were looking at a whole lot of social media stuff and they had friends and enemies what they call bullying them, calling them names and all that kind of stuff. And again, the, the thinking and the mind, if you can't control those thoughts, then people sometimes can drive you in a direction that you really ought not be going in. Now, I know it's a different generation. It's a totally different time. And we that are older, you know, we, we were raised in a, in a different way. But here's what my mom told me. If, if somebody calls you a name, does that make you what they called you? And I said, well, no. And, and so there, there was no, no thing where I got up out of the classroom and jumped out of my seat, went down to the principal's office and said, somebody in the classroom called me a name. I mean, if you called me a name, you just called me a name. Now, there's only a couple of ways to settle this. I can call you a name back. I can ignore you. Or we can go out on the schoolyard. See, I'm schoolyard. And, and, and fix it that way. But but in either case, there, there never was a time where I had one person or several people call me a name and I thought, oh my goodness, I don't even want to face tomorrow. The, the mind, the, the thought. So the way we, we instruct people and raise them up is important. We had somebody in France many, many years ago who went through a terrible situation in their life and just Went into the house, set the house on fire, and burned himself to death. Okay. Well, he says, is, is, is that unique to life? No, we've got this in the scripture too. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. Only making my way over here to the New Testament a little bit. 1 Kings 16. Look at, look at verse number 18. 1 Kings 16, verse 18, it came to pass when Zimri saw that the city was taken, the city was taken, that he went into the palace of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and he died. He took his own life. Why? Because the loss of the palace to him with the loss of the city meant everything I have is gone. And when people feel like that sometimes, with my most prized possession, everything that I live for has departed me, sometimes they want to they end it all. Now this is why it's so important for Christ to be your all in all. Your hope of glory. If, if he is not the plan and the purpose and the reason for your existence, then anything temporal in this world that you lose the devil can use the loss of that to cause you to believe you can't take another step. Listen to me. 
Job's wife was a woman who survived all of the devils, the devil's calamities, the tragedies that came to the family. And, and I'm sure there might have been one or two occasions when she was poking at Job and saying, why don't you curse God and die? And, you know, he might have had a thought in the back of his mind, you know, you know, why did you survive? Lost the kids. She was there. But the scripture says in the end, they still ended up with double for the trouble that they had, had lots more kids. That doesn't at all make up for the loss of everything they had in the beginning. But here's my point. Job's wife had to come to a place eventually where she was willing to start over. Start over with Job. Start over with God. Start over with the family. Because I've, I've seen people with the loss of a kid, they never want to have another. Especially just the first one. And it was tragic. Very emotional. I don't want to do it again. I don't want to put myself through that and go through all of those emotions. And, and, a, and a person like that, if the devil can press them and push them down, he can push them into a corner where they'll think about it. Let's just go ahead and you know, end it up. You don't have to do that. Christ should be the center of your life, of everything that, that you're doing. Okay, let's let's go now to, I'm not even going to work on Judas, but let's go to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And this is a verse that is often used at funerals when a person who attends church takes their life and people want to comfort and calm the family. I don't think it's the right verse to use, but, but it's the verse 38 and 39. It is what people often use. And here's what it says. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here, here's, here's what I hear people say from time to time. Well, this person was confirmed as a baby. Okay. Dedicated as a child. And so they were a member of the church. Now they may not have ever lived for God. May not have ever exhibited any Christian trait, any Christian grace, but because they went through that particular ritual. Not even suicide can separate them from the love of God. Now, I'm going to be clear when I say this. In the Bible, a believer is someone who believes in their heart and exhibits it with their life. So I'm not, I'm not under the impression at all that the water is what saves anybody. I don't, don't want you to think that at all. <clears throat> But sometimes I think in, in a person's desire to comfort family members and to comfort people that are really bereaving over what has uh, taken place, they look for a scripture that they think is hopeful, and they say, this is one that we can snag on to because this is nothing can separate us from the love of God. But let's look at the context of the scripture. Look at verse 32. He that spared not his own sons, but delivered them up for us all, shall he not with him freely give us all things. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's him that justifies. 
Who is he that condemned? It's Christ that died. Notice we're talking about death here. Christ that died. Yea, rather, is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, notice what it's describing. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, peril. Is written for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We're coming as sheep for the slaughter. And all these things were more than conquerors. So the context of this is, we're being persecuted because of our faith in God. This is not about suicide. This is about people who, like sheep, are being led to the slaughter because they have faith in Jesus Christ, and they're facing troubles, they're dealing with struggles, they're being denied and deprived of food, they've got trouble on every hand, and these kind of people, the scripture says, cannot be separated from the love of God because it's the love of God that's leading them through all. So when a, when a person decides on their own to just take their life or cut their wrist or something like that, this is not the verse for that. This is not the verse for that. What is suicide? Murder, taking of a life. person attempts to end their life and achieves it and no longer breathes. So then, we don't ever want to encourage it. We certainly don't want to approve of it. And if somebody's asking us a question and say, what's the Christian approach to suicide? It's, it's very simple. Don't do it. That's the first thing. Now, if, if it happens, here's what we do know. People commit suicide for a lot of different reasons. I've already mentioned a few. But th there are people who become ill mentally. They really do. I mean, they end up with Alzheimer's or something like that. They'll be wandering around the house and grab something they shouldn't have. And before you know it, accidentally, they've done something that isn't good. But as I said, accidentally, that was not their motive. That was not their intent to do so. So certainly a, a, a person like that, how do, how do you find them responsible for something like that? Yeah. From, a, from a mental perspective, if we know that the taking of a person's life is wrong, then we have to also know that from the beginning to the end of the book, it's still the same. So when you go to Revelation chapter 22, and you look at the very end of the New Testament, it gives you some context again. It says in verse number 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments. What is a Christian? Someone that does his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. But people will say this, I don't believe if you commit suicide and you go to church that you'll miss heaven. God will let you in. That, that's what people will say. But notice verse 15. For outside of the gates of the city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and makes a lie. I want you to understand it this way. <laughs> Suicide is the taking of a life. We don't want to ever encourage that. We'll tell people don't do that. But for people who say that even though you do it, you still make it to the kingdom, then my question is, where in the Bible are we ever taught that murder is a way to gain entrance into heaven? Okay? So it's, it's just <clears throat> like verse 15 where it talks about fornicators or, or whoremongers. Who, whoever came up with the idea that you can make love with different people and make it in heaven and not be married to them. 
Now, one time, Tiffany and I were traveling, and we were listening to a pastor who was talking to us, and here's what he said. He was talking about a funeral he had to do. He had to minister to this man, and he was telling us how happy he was that this man had given his heart to the Lord Jesus and had become Christian. And then in the course of the conversation, he proceeded to mention that for however long this was going on, he was living with a woman he wasn't married to and shacked up with. And then he died. Then he gets up, he preaches a funeral, and tells everybody the man went to heaven. So, of course, Tiffany and I didn't look at each other. We didn't say anything. We just made a mental note. And afterwards, we said, did you hear what he said? He said, you can live in fornication, and by living in fornication, you lose your life. That again, you're interested in heaven. See, that, that is not what, what the Lord is saying. So with all of the emotions and the feelings and the sentiment that is attached to such a terrible thing, don't ever change the word of God. Because your emotions aren't going to change God anyhow. We can cry, bawl, squall, and, and everything else, throw a tantrum, but if a person leaves this world without faith in Jesus Christ, they're lost. They're lost. And, and, and none of our tears are going to move God to open up the portals of heaven afterwards. It says in Revelation that he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. One that is holy, let him be holy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's a, it can be a, a very difficult thing, but in talking with people, you've got to have a whole lot of compassion. You've got to have a whole lot of mercy. Because typically, if you're having this kind of a discussion with someone, they're usually not in a position where they can hear it if it's just happened to somebody close. Yeah. You remember the story of the burning of Ziklag? And, and David and his men had been out raiding villages, doing some horrible things. But while they were gone, some people came and raided their home camp, took their women captive, stole all their stuff, people and lost their lives. So David and his people are making their way back, and I don't know if they're riding mules, horses, or camels, or walking, but as they're making their way back, they see smoke ascending from the city, and they knew it was trouble. And when they got to the city, everything was burnt to the ground, and the Bible says the people wept until they had no more tears to weep. I don't know if you've ever cried uh, that much. I have. I've had that kind of beating before a kid. Yeah, but 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 they wept until they, they couldn't cry anymore. And then the scripture says they went from sorrow to downright anger, and they started thinking about stoning David. You're the reason for all. The Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, as long as all of these people's spouses were captive and the kids were gone and their possessions were lost. Do you think they would have heard anybody who would have came and tried to console them and say, look, everything's going to be all right? No, they wouldn't have heard it at all because you can't hear that kind of a thing when you're in the middle of that kind of a storm. So sometimes you have to sit back and wait until you have the appropriate time to have a discussion with somebody or when they ask a question. I was called one time to the Diversion Dam over near Guide Rock, and there were a number of people that had tried. And so they called me and said, well, Pastor, could you go over there and, and maybe think about uh, just talking with some of these people that survived? So I get there, and I mean, it's, it's just not a pretty picture because the bodies haven't been recovered. And the way that dam works, uh, that water is rolling in, 
And then that undercurrent from that tide is just doing this right there at that dam. And so there's nobody that's going to go in there until they stop that water because everybody gets sucked in there trying to be involved in the rescue. So I, I got there and I'm walking around and the horse pastor's looking for snakes and making my way to where, where the people were. And there's a beautiful young lady, probably 25 or 26, maybe a little older, and three or four little blonde-headed kids next to her, all of them under the age of seven. And she is in shock. She's weeping profusely. Kids don't even really know what's going on. They're trying to figure out why mom's cutting up like this. The older ones have a sense that dad's gone, but the little ones don't know. And when I got there, they asked me, they said, well, do you want to have a, a few words with her? I looked at her, and I said, not at this time. Not at this time. Because I knew there's nothing I was going to say that she would hear, but her husband's body hadn't been recovered. And the main breadwinner in the house is now gone. I knew there's nothing. So what did, what did you do? I just went, sat down next to her, a couple of people with me, and just introduced myself, grabbed her by the hands, and prayed. And, and, and uh, days later, when I, I got a phone call from the sheriff, and the family wanted me to know how happy they were that I was there, and I was glad to receive that word. Now, now here's the other thing. I did that. There was somebody out of Hastings who was a secular counselor. Their role was to come down and try to minister to them because they were a grief counselor. So I'm watching a grief counselor go back and forth trying to talk to the kids, trying to talk to the woman. I'm telling that little lady who just lost her husband, she looked like she'd rather be on the moon than sitting there listening to this woman try to talk to her about her grief. Who wants to hear what you're going through is difficult right now? Of course it's difficult. That's why we're all here, because it's a difficult. When, you, when you're ministering to people who've lost everything, sometimes the best thing to do is like what happened with Job's friends. Just come, be there, don't say a word. Just be there. Because as in the story of Job, the moment you start talking, we typically say the wrong thing. So what are some of the wrong things to say? I know exactly how you feel. I know how you feel. Don't you know? I shouldn't even be a, a, a pronoun, a word that's even inserted into the discussion. Don't even start there. No. Okay, so access to the tree of life is for those that do the commandments of God. Don't encourage anybody to take their life. If you hear young people doing, telling people that on the telephone and on social media and stuff like that. This body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we're believers and Christians, if Jesus lives inside of us, then we want this thing to live, and, and Jesus can do what he can to make the live, this body live, and as long as I'm able to be mobile and I can move and all of that kind of stuff, then I want to be here. And when the king is ready to receive me and accept me in the glory, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Not a day before me. I want to be in the hospital and I'm unconscious, and, 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 and you know they had to do a surgery and something like that. It's taking place when somebody comes in and sees me twitching or shaking, and then they look at me and say, oh, my goodness, pastors are so much pain. Lord, don't let them go through this. Take them home. 
Oh no, don't pray that prayer for me. Get, get out of the room. Don't be in there praying that for me. My wife is interceding, praying, hoping that I live. At least she should be praying. Yeah. If your spouse is asking you if you paid up on your insurance before the surgery, hey, let, let's just work on another question here. Go to Romans chapter ten. Romans chapter ten. You know, there was a time down in the South where people would talk about the curse of Ham. And uh, darker complected people were cursed because of the curse that Noah put on Ham. And so for a long time, in a lot of states, what they called interracial marriage was banned. And if you were white, you certainly couldn't marry somebody black or even somebody Hispanic or Asian, but at least if they were Hispanic or Asian, that been a step up from the ones that were black. And so people had a lot of uh, secret interaction. So then here's the question. What does the Bible say about interracial marriage and is it sin? Well, well real quickly, uh, let me tell you, it's not. We know that Moses was an Israelite married an Ethiopian woman. We know that uh, Ruth being married to her husband, Ruth was Moabite. She married an Israelite. The thing that matters most to God is that people have the same covenant. Same covenant. If you have the same faith, the same love for Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you're blue. It just doesn't matter. God, God's not going to care what color anybody is because after all, let's remember, the scripture says we're made in his image. So he's the one who created us. And if we have all of this, I don't want to say complexity, but if we have all of these various shades in our complexions on planet Earth, you know they have to come from King. And people would use crazy little, you know, illustrations about how inter interracial marriage was, was wrong. They'd say, well, do you ever see, do you ever see cats and dogs mixing together? Well, no, they're different species, but you do see white cats and black cats and brown cats and gray tabbies and everything else getting together. They don't care anything about that. No. no. So look at Romans 10. And let me see here. Verse here. All right, Romans 10, verse 11. The scripture says, whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So according to these verses, anybody and everybody can be saved that calls on the name of the Lord, regardless of their color, their age, their background. Okay? So then if, if I'm standing at the foot of the cross... And there's somebody lighter or darker than me, but they still love the same Jesus that hung on the cross and believed he was alive and came out of that, that tomb. Then according to this, then, in Christ, those differences now don't matter. So the kingdom principle is, it doesn't matter if someone's Hispanic, Asian, Black, Native American, Indian, Caucasian, whatever it might be. We can all come together in Christ and be married in the Lord. That's biblical. And don't, don't let anybody try to change you into thinking 
that uh, this this whole neo-Nazi thing is scriptural, or this whole Black Panther thing, or 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 uh, what's the Farrakhan one? That Islam thing, that Nation of Islam thing. That stuff is wrong. Farrakhan and his leader believe that white people are born with the devil in their skin. That's a devilish doctrine. That's a devilish doctrine to even teach that to kids, but a lot of kids grow up listening to that and hear it. Some years ago in Red Cloud, there was a, a man up in the Dakotas. I can't remember which one. But he was one of these guys that was a leader of, of a whole group of people that didn't believe in what they called race mixture. And so they were being driven out of this little small town in South Dakota, and they were they scared just about most of the inhabitants out of the city because they walked around carrying their own guns. They patrolled the streets on their own. People didn't want to have anything to do with them. Even the cops didn't go around. But all of a sudden, they started buying up, trying to buy up properties in Webster County, where we were. And, and so it kind of got around town because the leader of it, he went to the courthouse and was checking on different houses that he could buy for back taxes and stuff like that. And, and then before you know it, people saw postings in social media said this particular gentleman, if his name comes to me, I'll call it, but they said this gentleman is moving to Red Cloud or the Innovale, I should say, six miles away from Red Cloud. But some of his, his, his group were looking at homes in, in the Red Cloud area. Well, I, I had some people in town that said to me, well, you know, Daryl, what, what do you think about this? I mean, this man come to town, it'd be kind of crazy. We don't want, want you getting shot around here. I said, well, I mean, at that time, I think I've been in 15 years. I said, well, this has been my house, my home for 15 years. I said, I'm not getting up and, and running from anybody. And I said, you know, turn the other cheek. But I said, look, I'm, I'm, as, I'm as sanctified as anybody else until I'm not. <laughs> You know, I said, I know how to use a gun, too. Mm -hmm. I don't plan on shooting anybody, but nobody's going to tell me I can't go to the grocery store in my own town. It's just not going to happen. Well, I went on a trip to go preach one time and came back, and there on that telephone, these people, uh, CNN and other TV people, they're on there. They said, we here. There's so-and-so moving to town. We'd like to interview you and, and like to know your thoughts on all of this. I never did call any of them back because I wasn't interested in giving anybody my thoughts. Didn't want to entertain all this foolishness. In the end, what the town did, the town ended up condemning the properties, and then the town either burned the houses or they paid the taxes on the property, and everywhere these people wanted to move in, they couldn't come in anyhow. But think about that. At that time, my wife and I think, other than maybe one other person, we were the only blacks in town, and, and they had already been promoting publicly what they were going to do. The people that were in that town that weren't of the Caucasian skin color. Folks, listen to me. God has not given us a spirit of He has not. And, and people like that who don't believe in the interaction of people, they don't have any sense because they certainly don't know God. And when you come in contact with people who say they are Christian, and yet they hold those views. I'm telling you, they're not born of the Spirit of God. Well, let's go to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. This is where we'll start winding down. Colossians 3. Okay. Let's look at 
Okay, Colossians 3, look at verse number 9. We're talking about putting on the new man. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds. So the old man has a lot of problems, and you can see that in verse 8. Those are the works of the flesh. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. But put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, Scythian being worship of the law, bond nor free, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So, so here's the thing. When a man or woman is outside of Christ, they can hold some vile views and opinions. When that person is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, genuinely saved in their heart, the scripture says in Romans 5 and 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. But even with that, you have to combine what Paul said in Ephesians, which is be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Because you can become a Christian coming out of darkness into the light, and if you don't read the Bible and change your thinking, you still can hold on to views from your past, and they'll govern your life when you're trying to be a Christian. And this is what we saw in the history of our nation. Had a lot of that. This inward struggle that people had and mistreatment of individuals because they were the wrong color. You said, well, what's your belief about people who, you know, the founding fathers and folks like that who owned slaves and people who were, were very racist in their heart? Listen, people have been owning slaves throughout the history of the world. During the colonial times, it was a terrible day. I, I don't like reading stories about that any more than you do. You can also go back and read old letters from the new colonial period era, and you can find the blacks on slaves. But, but here, here's what I'm getting at. The scripture says, here is how we know that we pass from death to life by love one toward another. Just because you were a member or somebody was a member of Episcopalian church or because they attended a Methodist church, that did not make them Christian. That did not make them Christian. And just because they had their name written down on the church book of life or something like that and, and everybody celebrated them when they were dead and as far as their Christian life and how wonderful they were, but they hated people, that does not mean they made it into heaven. doesn't mean they were celebrated down here. Because when you're born again, the scripture tells us that we put on the new man. Something happens inside of us that is born from above, and we have an image now that is renewed in the image of God, and we begin to act like him. We look like him. Yeah, this is what he said. And in that new nature, there is no prejudice. There's no prejudice. So you take all these little kids that are in here right now. When they come into this world... They are not prejudiced. And, and, and babies who will just about go to anybody, they don't pay attention to what the color of somebody's skin is. They just go from arms to arms. They just have the time of their life. They just go, they don't care how, whether somebody's big or small or tall or short. They'll go from one person to another. And you put you put eight or nine toddlers in a room together, they don't care what the color of any of the other babies are. 
They're having the time of their life. But as they get older, then when adults and older people start putting those thoughts in them, then the distinctions and the differences become walls that separate. When you're born again as a Christian, you instinctively know because of that new nature that we're the same and God loves us, we're made in the image of him. You know that. But that mind, that old man, is constantly trying to remind you of the culture of the past, the habits of yesterday, and everybody should make sure they remember their place. Remember their place in the kingdom of this world. Act according to this culture. And you see that over and over again. I just want you to know that the scripture says in verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. So there's no distinction amongst little kids when it comes to the color. And the Lord says, except you become like little children, be converted. Then how are we ever going to do what God wants us to do? So if a person is black, he falls in love with someone that's white. The person is Chinese, falls in love with someone that is from Paraguay. God doesn't have a problem at all because God made us all with it. The only thing that matters is that we have the same covenant with him. And Paul said, if we're going to marry, marry in the Lord. So if we have a relationship with the king, nothing else matters. Hold on to your faith and your belief in the scripture and do not deviate from what the text says. Otherwise, we'll end up in the bondage that a whole lot of other people are in. Believe me, there are a whole lot of angry, hateful, spiteful people filled with bitterness because of these kinds of things. And I would even encourage you that even in our current context, all the issues with the border and all that kind of stuff, keep your heart pure enough you love people. You love people. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We honor you. We praise you. Thank you for every opportunity we have to walk in love and in grace. Father, I pray that not a soul in this room would ever be overcome with the spirit of death his or her life. And we just thank you for that, Lord. In fact, we know the word of God speaks over us and decrees over us that, that you called us unto life. That we're living according to that verdict that you spoke long ago. You said death and life is in the, in the, po the power of life and death is in the tongue, Lord. In that tongue, the power, they that love it, have the fruit of it. Help us to speak life to one another. And Father, help us every day to let our heart be flooded. With a, with a wonderful love and mercy and compassion, that God, there be no room for prejudice of any kind in our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.